My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is the wise, generous, courageous, and really, truly lovely soul, Parker Palmer. Parker is an elder, and I mean that in the capital E sense of the word, someone who holds and carries wisdom for us as a, as a community, as a culture, as a society even if that wisdom is not always welcomed by the dominant forces that shape us and shape our worlds. He is, his writing has been, I often describe writers who influence me as mentors, even if I've never met them. And this is one of those beautiful moments where I actually had the opportunity not only to be mentored by Parker's writings at times when I really needed them. His book, Let Your Life Speak in particular, has been an incredible touchstone for me. But now I had the opportunity to discuss and, and meet and communicate with, with Parker. And I left this hour or so conversation even more feeling that mentor teacher energy that he embodies. Again, it's that capital E elder that in a way he's been living into for well over 40 years, if not perhaps even his whole life as he, as you'll hear him touch into uh, and what it was like his sense that he of how he was born into the world and how that shaped him moving through to this moment now at age 82, where he continues to reckon with the big questions of who we are as, uh, as a people, as a nation, what it is to take a stand for the common good. One of the quotes from his most recent book, which is called on the brink of everything, grace, gravity, and getting old is his quote that old is just another world, old is just another word for nothing left to lose. Old is just another word for nothing left to lose. A time to take bigger risks on behalf of the common good. And we talk in this conversation about what those risks can look like, big and small, what it is to invest ourselves, our bodies, our livelihood in, in those things that we can't not do. That something inside of us, some imperative inside us drives us towards. So it was just, they say never, you know, you're not supposed to meet your heroes, but meeting Parker was truly special for me. And my hope that as you listen to this, you, you get to touch into that specialness. And if you haven't read his books, that you'll go out from here and pick one of them up. I can highly recommend personally, let your life speak, the courage to teach. A Hidden Wholeness, and his most recent book, On the Brink of Everything. He's also written extensively about the livelihood of our democracy and 
the risks and dangers it faces in the face of fascism and authoritarianism. And so there's just a lot, there's a lot to drink from here, from this well that he has helped fill and that he has, the lineages he has drawn from and carried forward. So let's get settled in. <sighs> and hear what Parker has for us. Parker, welcome to the Wonder Dome. Thank you, Andy. Wonderful to be with you. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, I mean, I said it before we started recording, but I feel like I need to say it again. It's just so exciting for me to have some time with you. I'm going to give uh, our mutual friend, Pamela, a big hug next time I see her and when it's safe to do so uh, for, for making the introduction because your work has impacted me really deeply. Your writing has impacted me really deeply over the years. Well, and, thank you. And, and Pamela is a member of the tribe, of course. Yeah. A wonder, wonderful friend for us to have. Yeah. Yeah. She's, she's really special in her own right. We could, we could probably spend an hour singing her praises, but Pamela, I if, think you're, so. yeah. if you're I listening, think so. please know that we're sending you lots of love and grateful for this. So Parker, um, gosh, there's so much I want to ask you, but I guess maybe we can start in this moment I sense you're in uh, with your latest book, which is about getting older. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and, and living on what you call the brink of everything uh, at around age 80. And maybe you're a little bit older since, since that, that milestone 80, passed. 82, yeah. 82. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You've written this book, kind of, which I sense is a is a looking a looking ahead towards what might, whatever might come next, but also a looking back. And I wonder what it's like to you to sort of be at this this moment in your life where you're really sitting with the question of of this being on the brink, as you name it. Well, it's it's uh, speaking of the Wonder Dome, and to use this word again, it's wonderful to be to be here, <laughs> and it's actually. Um, a very good thing for me to have written this book a couple of years ago in which I was beginning to do what I always do with new stages of life or new experiences, which is to explore them, to be curious about them mm. and mm. to try to commit to paper, whatever reflections and insights I have at the moment and to ask the questions uh, that are arising with, within me. I, I find it, uh, to do that in a book is to kind of remind myself on an ongoing basis of things I don't want to forget. And it's also mm. to invite a larger conversation with, well, with people like you at this very moment and readers who write me about the book. So the book is called On the Brink of Everything, Grace, Gravity, and Getting Old. Um, but I, uh, you know, you will note that it's not subtitled Growing Old Gracefully, because I don't know a lick about that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, when, when younger people ask me, well, you know, why would I want to read this book? I say, well, I don't know that, that you would, but tell me this. Are you continuing to get older? It looks like you are. Because <laughs> we're here talking, and you were here yesterday and the day before. So all of us lucky ones are getting older, and we yeah. are the lucky ones. Yes. And I think I think that you know one of the things especially in this horrific global pandemic um one of the things that um that we 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 celebrate with with deep gratitude is simply that we're still alive. And if that has taken you into elder years as it has me at age 82 um 
whatever aches and pains may come with that and whatever fears may come with that are, are for me subsumed under my deep, deep gratitude for life itself, mm. for the adventure, for the, for the journey, for the ongoing journey, and for all of the people and creatures and uh, things in the world of nature and human nature that you run into along the way and that you interact with, you, you, you are in dialogue with, and that have an impact on your life, and you have an ongoing chance to impact them in a life-giving way. So to me, that's what being on the brink means. Uh, I don't think of the brink as a scary place where, where maybe I'm going to fall off uh, mm -hmm. into a, an abyss. I think of it more as a place where you get perspective. Um, you, you can simply see more from the brink than you can from the center. Um, mm -hmm. I've done mm -hmm. a fair amount of uh, mountain hiking in my time. And, you know, you can, it's great to be immersed in the forest as you go up, uh, for example, the Sangre de Cristo Mountains in New Mexico. But greater still for me is to get to the top and, and be able to see the landscape around you and these unfolding ranges of mountains that seem to go on and on and on. That's, that's the brink, and it's a good place to be. Yeah, I love it. I'm struck. I'm enjoying a, a nice bit of symmetry and that I'm just about to turn 41. So I will, at least in the ways that we measure time here in our culture, be about halfway along this chronological journey that you just described. And, uh, and I'm really appreciative of moments in my life where either by, by grace or good fortune or, or, or kind of persistence made my way into spaces that, that gave me some kind of sight line to something more than the right. step right right a bigger a bigger horizon yeah yeah there you have a you refer to a quote in one of your writings um from kurt vonnegut and player piano where he says out on the edge you can see all kinds of things you can't see at the center yeah i love i love that quote and in some ways that quote has been with me for a very long time even when i was younger and not on any sort of brink in terms of chronology or age i i was seeking to be uh, to, to live in a decentered life. <laughs> uh, I think, you know, decentering ourselves and decentering our privilege and decentering yeah. um, the, the quote, normal or expected path we're supposed to follow often puts us in a place of being able to see more than you can see when you're caught up in what is expected of you or the, the sort of ordinariness of uh, of a life built around other people's expectations. So that whole notion of where, where is it that you can see more? Where is it that you can know more? Where is it that you can feel more? Where is it that you can learn more? And incidentally, where is it that you can find better stories to tell? Uh, that, that's been, <laughs> that's, that's been an, uh, important uh, to me for a very long time. And it actually lies behind some of the moves I've made that um, may have seemed counterintuitive at the time, but I'm glad I made them. Mm. Mm. Part of me wants to hear more about some of those moves, maybe hear you tell some stories of those moves. And I'm also finding myself curious from where you sit now at 82 on the particular brink that you've named for yourself, what are some of the things that you're seeing so I'll put, put both of those threads on the table. We could either kind of 
in this moment, look at some of the things you're seeing from your particular vantage that you feel called to share, or, or maybe those moments where count you did something that someone might have said, "Oh, that's counterintuitive. That's that's not logical," and yet it was it led you towards story and discovery. Yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting choice to be asked to make, uh, and maybe we can wind them together or loop them around. And yeah, way. let's yeah, yeah, that would be great. Yeah, because uh, you know what I'm some of the things I'm seeing now, I wouldn't be seeing if it hadn't been for those uh, decisions made mm. 30 and, and 40 years ago, mm. um, which, you know, you, when you, when you set a course on a compass, you're headed toward a destination you believe, but if that compass setting at the, at the beginning is, is a half a degree or one degree off, you're going to end up uh, after a long journey, many miles away from where you wanted to go. <laughs> So, and, and of course, life is life never proceeds that precisely. But, and you have to keep feeling your way and making compass and course adjustments as yeah. you go. Um, but uh, I can give you one one quick example, Andy. That Please, in in many ways, take me to the present day because the present day. One of the gifts of the present day at age eighty two is that I now feel that I can look back on what would look to some people like a very erratic career course and find out that it makes great sense to me mm-hmm. because it's a it's taken me to the place where I am now and I'm glad for the place where I am now I gratitude is one of the big things you learn about at my age and that includes gratitude for every step and misstep of your life I mean the mistakes and acknowledging them, embracing them, and learning from them has have as much to do with keeping on on keeping to true north um, as do the things at which you've succeeded or the, the the good bets you placed and the guesses you made correctly. But one moment that comes to me right now, for whatever reason, is that um, I went to graduate school at Berkeley. Um, after doing an undergraduate degree at Carleton College in Minnesota, um, I was the first person in my family to go to college. So I was taken by surprise that I had some kind of attraction to the academic life. And I um, was fortunate to get a a full ride uh, fellowship through grad school. I went to Berkeley and spent uh, four or five years in the middle of the 60s, um, which was an education in itself, of course, but I was finishing a PhD um, in sociology, specifically the sociology of religion. But by the time I got that degree in 1969, a lot had happened. My heroes had been assassinated. The, the, uh, a war was raging. Uh, race was once again... Uh, up for a reckoning in this country as it has been since the first day a slave ship hit these shores 400 and some years ago. Um, And uh, the cities were burning. And so in 69, with my freshly minted PhD in hand, I walked away from the academy because I felt very strongly that I was called to use my sociology in the streets rather than Mm. in the classroom. 
And I went to Washington, D.C. and became a community organizer. And, you know, most, most people, my mentors, I'd had wonderful mentors who had set me on that academic path, family and friends, they, they really didn't understand what I was doing. And, and I understand why they didn't understand. <laughs> I barely understood it myself. The only phrase I was able to come up with at the time when people said, what, what is this madness, Parker, that has you walking away from a secure career in academia into creating your own community organizing institute in Washington, D.C., and working on racial justice by fighting redlining and blockbusting. And I said, well, all I can tell you about that is that I can't not do it. Mm. I can't mm. not do it. Mm. But am I wild, crazy, enthusiastic about the idea of me as a married man with a couple of kids um, making my trying to make my living at a job I've never done before, for which I have no real formal training, <laughs> and having to raise my own money uh, a quarter at a time every three months in order to sustain my work as a as an organizer. No, I'm not wild, crazy, enthusiastic about that. <laughs> but here's the thing: I know that if I didn't do this, I would pay a price with my own soul. Mm. I would somehow be compromising my identity and integrity. And no, I'm not a trust fund baby. And no, I don't have deep pockets to fall back on. But I have my life to honor mm. uh, and, mm. and my soul to honor. And mm. so I need to do this. And I spent five years doing that work, which then in turn took me into a radical life in a totally egalitarian Quaker community near Philadelphia called Pendle Hill, where I spent the next 11 years um, and where, among many other things, um, everybody who worked there, no matter what degree they had or what role they played, got the same base salary. Mm. Um, it was, you know, it was radical economic equality in action. And I can't tell you, Andy, how much I learned uh, from those 11 years and how many important things happened to me. I mean, you're looking at me on Zoom right now. I'm white, I'm male, I'm straight, I'm middle class, I'm upper middle class or middle class um, and grew up in a privileged white suburb outside of Chicago. Um, so I'm, I'm the poster boy for people who are generally packed to the gills with a sense of entitlement <laughs> because you know this this country was this country in so many ways was not made for you and you and you and me yeah. it was made for guys like me yeah which is an american tragedy yes um but 11 years of living under these circumstances of radical economic equality where it just didn't matter what a person's title was or how much money they made what mattered is well, to quote Martin Luther King Jr., the content of their character, mm. what they said, what they did, who they were in action. And I count it a great treasure to have spent those years having my own sense of entitlement ground down <laughs> at least a bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. It opened my eyes to, to the preciousness of every human being 
whatever their job may be, whatever their income or not income may be. I just learned a lot about receiving people on their own terms, which I value profoundly. I'm not saying that my sense of entitlement is altogether gone because I think if you're if you're someone like me, this and this society works for you so well, oh, yeah. it's really hard to lose all of it. Oh yeah. But I I treasure those years for that reason. Sounds remarkable. What a what an what an incredible 15 year stretch of community organizing. And then I don't know, what would you describe it as like community practicing? You're living in this place of like, here's a different way we could be together. Well, exactly, Andy. And and part of it's a very that's a very um right on remark because part of what took me to that Quaker community was the sense after five years as a community organizer that I was trying to lead people to a place I'd never been myself, mm. namely mm. a place called Community, mm. which was mm. one of my earliest publications uh, when, when I started writing. Um, and, you know, it, it, it was, again, this, this sort of curiosity in me, this, this imperative to learn from each step I had taken you know, five years of community organizing took me into deep burnout. That's not uncommon among people who do that kind of work. So I was planning to spend just a year at Pendle Hill in <laughs> this Quaker community, stretched into 11 years. Wow. But the reason for that year, that sabbatical year, as I saw it at the time, was to experience this this thing called community <clears throat> that my organizing had led me to realize I didn't know much about it. Mm. Um, so how can you be a community organizer if you've never really experienced <laughs> the, depth, the depths of community? Uh, it seemed very clear to me, and I'll, I'm always glad for that learning imperative. And actually, over the years, when people have said, what drives your writing, what drives your teaching, what drives you, I've, I've, I learned, I've learned to say the truth, which is I was born baffled. <laughs> I, I just, I think, you know, I, they pulled me out in, in that delivery room and lifted me up and slapped a little air into my lungs. And I just looked around and said, wait, what? <laughs> what is this? <laughs> what is this all about? This is crazy. <laughs> and I've felt that way ever since. <laughs> Mm -hmm. mm. Boy, that, that story evokes a lot for me, Parker. I'm right at the end there. I'm really struck by the gift of bafflement. The, you know, there's this implicit, I'll speak for myself. There's this implicit pressure I, I've been aware of over the years of like being the person who has it figured out or being the person, being the smartest person in the room or being the person who doesn't make a mistake or, you know, or, and, and, and the shame and humiliation that can come with being someone who doesn't get it or doesn't fit in or doesn't, you know, know how, know the implicit rules of the game that, that supposedly we're all playing. And, and what I hear you describing is this wonderful bafflement that you came into the world with that has allowed you to kind of consciously and unconsciously interrogate the, those implicit norms and say, yeah, I know academics and the PhD and I could go in that way, but like there's something over here I got to check out. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, we're, here we are again, another reckoning with race. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff for white folks, especially to check out yeah. and to get current with. And we're doing all of that in the midst of a heavy, heavy ideological pushback. No, let's not learn about that stuff because that would make us feel bad. And we need people who just keep saying, no, that's that's the road to hell to, to stop learning. Um, yeah. The road to a good life and a better life, not only for you and me, but for everyone, is to keep learning and, and be honest about what we're learning and, and face into it. If you, as, I, as I once famously, I say famously in my own mind, <laughs> as, I once, as I once learned on an outward bound course when I was about 40 years old and was facing the challenge of rappelling yeah. off of a 110-foot cliff which scared the daylights out of me i got stuck halfway down i I was frozen i couldn't move and this young instructor down below this very gifted uh, young woman who was a great great climber and rappeller she said is anything wrong parker and i and i i gave a really i gave a classic male response in a squeaky voice i said i don't want to talk about it (laughs) (laughs) And she said, oh, well, fair enough. But I think it's time for you to learn the the motto of the outward bound, of the Hurricane Island outward bound mm. school up in Maine. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, oh, Keen, I'm about to die. And she's giving me a motto. Uh, <laughs> and she said, our, our motto up here is, if you can't get out of it, get into it. Mm. And mm. Uh, that those words just bypassed my argumentative brain and my my fear response and just went into my feet and I thought, yeah, no helicopter is gonna come and rescue me. <sighs> Nobody's gonna climb halfway up the cliff to carry me down. So feet start moving. And I went on down just fine and learned a big lesson at the same time. So there's so much stuff we can't get out of learning can get us into it. An attitude of curiosity can get mm. us into it. Like mm. what's here, what's here that, uh, that I need to learn. And anybody, I think Andy, who thinks for 30 seconds about the reality of their own experience will acknowledge that most of us do not learn anything from success <laughs> or from always <laughs> having the quote right answer. Yeah. The, all we do with, those moments in life is to pat ourselves on the back and and think well of ourselves weller than we should actually (laughs) Um, but it's those moments of struggle of failure of not knowing of fear and anxiety about feeling lost that that actually wake us up from our from our uh, dogmatic slumber Mm. as i think emmanuel kant said Mm. um and cause us to question ourselves, to question the world around us, and to learn something that moves us ahead, how to do the job better, how to hold ourselves in, well in the midst of the multiple needs we have um, to not only be effective, but to have our feet on the ground, to, to uh, build community with others because we can't do any of it alone, on and on and on and on. Those are the lessons that come when we when we've messed up, and I think mm-hmm. most people uh, would acknowledge that. Love that. 
Thank you. Say the motto one more time. If if you can't get out, if, if you can't get out of it, get into it. Get into it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it just applies everywhere. You know, if yeah. you're raising, you and I were talking a little earlier about child rearing. If you're raising a teenager, there's a whole lot of stuff that you struggle with, um, but you can't get out of it uh, yeah. unless you just you know, or one of those, or someone who feels fine about walking away from the responsibilities of being a parent or whatever. But even that strikes me as a way, like, as the illusion of getting out of it, right? Like you may go to, you may, you may go to your grave, never having connected with your teenage child because you left, but you still carry that that departure and they still carry that departure and it's just sort of right it's, there's really no Absolutely. way out actually yeah we we carry all that stuff with us and um you know it's not to say that i'm not generalizing and saying there aren't some relationships that you do need to get out of because they're not healthy relationships but the parent child bond is something else and I think it saved my bacon many a time as the father of teenagers to say look this is another one of those moments when you you can't get out of it so get into it find mm. out what's ask ask your kid what's happening mm. and, and keep asking because they're not accustomed to you talking to them that way they're accustomed to you telling them what to do stop doing that and, <laughs> and, and, and get into it by listening so. yeah beautiful so maybe as we come back here, to, I'm feeling called back into the present moment now with this sort of, um, I wonder, and I imagine, I can only imagine that that at age 82, as opposed to 41 or 35 or, or what have you, that the quality of getting into something is different or the quality of that, which you can't not do might be different. But is there, is there something now that you're sitting with, you're like, I I just can't not do that at this moment in my life, right? I have to go see that or I have to go check that out. Where's your curiosity and that imperative that has driven you? How's it alive in you in this time in your life? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So I think I think right now those those things sort of emerge on a daily basis and they range from um things that most people would say, yeah, objectively that's important to other things that are just sort of idiosyncratic to me. But I'll give you a, a couple of examples. Mm, mm. Um, it, it will come as no news to anyone listening to your podcast, Andy, that um, I've, I've found the last 10 or 15 years, 20 years of American politics to be extremely problematic. In yeah. fact, I've found American politics uh, since... 1981 and Ronald Reagan um, and the beginning of this conservative revolution at first, and I think today devolution Mm. uh, into Mm -hmm. what um, large portions of the Republican Party have become very dangerously. So um, I found that all very, very troubling. And of course, the Democrats have it's it's not just a conservative problem. Liberals mm-hmm. have made as many mistakes, important mistakes, about the failure to reach for a, 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 a more just distribution of American wealth, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so um, this this, but it has taken new uh, twists and turns, and so 
which have been even more troubling to me, um, eight months before the, the election in 2016, I published an online article at a widely, on a widely read site called On Being, with mm. Mr. Tippett. Mm-hmm. Um, the article was titled, Will Fascism Trump Democracy? Mm. And that was eight months before uh, the new administration had a chance to start showing us all what it means to make that long march into authoritarianism and uh, I think eventually if we don't if we don't watch our step into fascism so for me that was an interesting moment because I was already of course in my mid 70s and there was a part of me that just wanted rest and I knew that once I published something like that um having a few years earlier, published a book called Healing the Heart of Democracy. I knew this would, you know, uh, engage me in further, deeper turmoil, something that a lot of older folks don't want. But <laughs> I, 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 felt, I felt, you know, profoundly called to that. And talk about puzzlements, you know, how, how it is that uh, this country um, can... Um, create this this mindset that America, the American vision is totally about freedom, even though it began with unfreedom, with yeah. enslavement yeah. for a huge population of people, black people who were to form the foundation of our capitalist success, which isn't success at all when it's built on slave labor. Yeah. Um, uh, that that we have this mentality today, building over the years, that freedom is what America is all about, <laughs> despite the hypocrisy of that statement, and that freedom means I get to do anything I want <laughs> without reference at all to yeah. its impact on other people. Yeah. Uh, if I want to become a, uh, a predatory capitalist, or if I want to spread a deadly disease, I'm I'm free to do that. That's that's the American dream. That, uh, so I don't know how to resist a conundrum like that. How did we get here? <laughs> how do we get beyond it? How do we get out, out it's of? It's a doozy of a conundrum. <laughs> yeah, it really is, and it's a life and death question. And so yeah. I just felt like. No, you may need rest, Parker, but as long as as long as you can manage in a life-giving way this maelstrom of emotions you're having about it, which includes a lot of anger mm. and a lot of judgment, mm. and, and you can write and speak out of a place that, that doesn't blink the fact that you have those feelings, but that finds a way to harness those feelings in something that might speak. Uh, to reasonable people, uh, then then that's something you really need to do. So that's one example of something that I've really felt drawn to. But mm. at the other end, that idiosyncratic mm. thing, I, I have also, in just in the last few months, uh, felt drawn to, um, and this is part of aging for me, drawn to appreciation for very, very small things, mm. very, very small moments with other people, 
uh, very, very small sights out my window, like a beautiful sunset or sunrise, um, observing or participating in small acts of kindness that make a difference in people's lives. We, Our neighborhood had a, a garage sale, a neighborhood-wide, community-wide garage sale the other day, and my yeah. wife and I put a bunch of stuff out. And we said, this is not... <clears throat> A garage sale. This is the great garage giveaway. So, if, if, if there's anything here that you would like, feel free to take it. Just take a couple of things, not everything, so that there's more left for others. If you want to take something because a charity, you know, would give it to somebody who really needs it, do do that too. And it was just a great day of kibitzing mm-hmm. with our neighbors around a, a countercultural thing. Um, of giving stuff away rather rather than selling it. So that those small pleasures are an important part of my life these days. But here's what here's what it's gone to. A few months ago, I decided to buy myself a <coughs> a, a, a cool tiny point and shoot digital camera, which nice. has which has you know more brain power in it than the space shuttle. <laughs> <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, I've been, there aren't, where I live, there aren't like huge mountain or ocean vistas. I live in the upper Midwest. So I go on a two-mile walk every day. I take my camera with me, and I shoot close-ups of what's inside Mm. a flower Mm. or this (laughs) particular pattern in a garden that becomes visible from, you know, two or three feet away rather than the whole scene. Um, or just the end of a bench, uh, a carefully constructed wooden bench on metal piping in a park with the grass down below it. Just those structural elements, you know. Yeah. I, yeah. I was, it's a bench that I'm often drawn to sit on, and I thought, well, why? Well, it's, it's, it's a beautiful piece. Let's, let's just photograph the elements of of its construction up against natural elements like grass and dirt. So I'm just having fun appreciating at that level of sort of um, the microcosm. Love that. All the stuff that's out there that's lovely, lovely to look at. Mm. I'm struck, Parker, by the um, like the sort of you describing that sort of two ends of an extreme or something like that. Like there's this really deep political life and death conundrum that we, that we must face as a society. And then there's also these wonderfully microscopic moments or ways of seeing the world that are just worth paying attention to. And I'm in touch to me in a way they feel like uh, two sides of the same coin or sort of the same capacity for seeing inverted or applied in different directions like your ability to notice and name really clearly the structural disintegrity of of what we say versus what we do oh freedom i which means i'm free to trample over anyone else in pursuit of what i want and and like hey let's look at that and let's see how that is structurally socially relationally really ugly and brutal and then on the flip side it'd be like Oh, like, look at the way that, look at the, the curve of that flower and look how perfect that is. 
and and how majestic it is as much as perhaps the grand vista of the Sangre de Cristo mountains that you spoke to earlier are majestic. Like there's something about your capacity for seeing things in integrity or not that I'm in touch with right now. And I wonder as I, as I reflect that back, if that resonates with you or, or how do you, how you might play with that? Yeah, it does very much. Andy. Yeah. I, you know, one of the big concepts in my writing over the years, and I don't, I really don't know what I would have done without this concept is the, is the notion of paradox. Mm. Uh, mm. And of course the classical statement of paradox is that it, you're looking at what appears to be a contradiction, which which our, our minds tend to do to a lot of things we look at, because we we our minds work in an either or kind of way in in Western logic. It's either this or that. Mm. Um, mm. And there are a lot of either ors. You know, there there's lies and there's truth. <laughs> Uh, there's fictions and there's facts, but uh, in a in a paradox, it turns out that in some instances, two things that appear opposite each other are in fact complementary. They mm. Help, mm. Co- they co-create each other. Mm. I often I like to say, you know, our bodies know about this, even if our brains don't, because we engage in the daily paradox of. Breathing in and breathing out, breathing in and breathing out. And if if I were to decide one day that you know what I, I I'm basically a breathing in kind of guy, so that's all I'm going to do, you know, for, for the rest of my life. Well, my life wouldn't be very long, right? Because <laughs> my life depends on a body that holds that 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 paradox. But on a on a more abstract level, there are paradoxes like this. Are, are, whether you think of us spiritually, theologically, or biologically, are we made for community? Absolutely. Mm. You know, there, there's no biologist who won't tell you, yeah, we're made for community. We come yeah. from community, we thrive in community, we depend on community. And when we die, we contribute to the regeneration of that community, dust to dust, you know, yeah. the, the atoms keep circulating. Um, are we made for solitude? Absolutely we are. Anybody who has thought seriously about death, let alone a lot of other things, knows that there are certain things in life that we, on which we cannot be accompanied, certain journeys we have mm-hmm. to make mm-hmm. that no one else can make with us. People can stand by, stand watch, bear witness, but you can't go with me to these places. Um, I know this intimately from several experiences that I've written about of clinical depression, which you can also think of as as death in life. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, And for months at a time, profound months of struggle over whether life was worth living. Um, I had to make that journey alone. Were, were there people who wanted to help me? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but there was a, a lot that I alone had to do. Mm. Even the best mm. of therapists mm. Um, or the best of psychiatrists with their medications could not do what I needed to do in the dark hours of the day, which were 
most of the hours of the day. Yeah. Um, when when I'm struggling with not not just being lost in the dark, but having become the dark, mm. um, and mm. uh, and so paradox abounds, and I don't know how to understand life without it. Um, and and so the macro and the micro are one of those paradoxes. Um, and and it's, it's an important and very interesting paradox because uh, it, it applies in, in, so many, um, in so many realms of life, on so many levels of life. I, I once heard an onstage interview with Wendell Berry, the great oh, wow. writer about many things, novels. He, he, he writes amazing novels, poetry, essays. The essays are all about trying to reclaim part of what it means to live in a local in local economies in an ecologically sound and sane ways. And somebody toward the end of his lecture in the Q&A period said, so I understand the problem, but what's the answer? And he kind of chuckled, a question he'd heard many, many times, and he said, you know, the form of the of your question suggests that you're hoping to get one big answer to one big problem. Mm. But he says, mm. history doesn't work that way. Every time we have a big problem in history, the only answer comes from a million, million, million little answers cumulatively impacting that larger situation mm. and, until you know, slowly and incrementally, some sort of change in the right direction comes. Um, and then Paul Hawken writes a book called Blessed Unrest, which he, in which he demonstrates that about the ecological crisis. So I just think that the macro-micro thing is constantly dancing mm. for mm. us. Mm. And there's, there's something, for me, there's something life-giving about holding it in daily attention as when you say yeah this big global task of of preserving democracy lies before us and and i i want to put my oar in those waters but then there's also that amazing lily <laughs> i can photograph again down the block in a different light revealing different parts of its interiority yeah it's it's all part of the same deal <laughs> i'm so I, that must have been a remarkable event to be at with wendell berry and uh i'm really touched by that articulation and it to me in a way for me i'm i have your book let your life speak here sitting in front of me and, and to a way i'm feeling like kind of felt connection to your invitation at that book which is to say the way I'm making sense of it in this moment is to say that, that your task is not to answer all the questions or to solve all the problems, but rather to simply listen for what it is your life is saying to you about where you might go next. And that if, and that if in fact, all of us had the privilege to do that, or those of us who have the privilege to do that, started doing that, just slowing down and listening to ourselves and to each other, that those million, million small problems might start to be be attended to. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I think this is something that's done that can be done and is done by 
by people in in every walk of life. I'm often struck by the fact that I've known so many people with very fundamental economic struggles in this society, often conditioned by race and, and by backgrounds of poverty, who who are so much better than the white privileged folks I know at asking the question, what is truly important to me mm. and, and how do I serve it in, in the best way I know how? Um, one of the things I learned as a community organizer, Andy, is that the, 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 one of the primary forces for good in a lot of economically deprived communities is the grandmothers mm-hmm. who, mm. who have the kids very much on their minds and have the time and space in their lives to watch after those kids and care for those kids. And any community organizer worth his or her salt should have learned a long time ago that if you want to make a difference in that community, help those grandmothers get organized and get resourced. Follow their mm. lead mm. as to what they need and how how they can be freed to, to, to do that tending of the young um, more at deeper levels and, and more often. And you'll get somewhere in terms of of community health. So yeah. I think people that's cool at, at all kind in all kinds of places in life have a, have an opportunity to do that. And and it it is absolutely critically important um, that we find the right questions to yeah. to land on um, with our lives. As you know, I think maybe from let your life speak. I I read a lot of Rainer Maria Rilke, the great poet. And he's someone I wish I could have talked to in in real life. Oh, his writings are a kind of conversation. Absolutely. And so his book, Letters to a Young Poet, where all of us Rilke fans are so glad for that because that's like having a conversation with him. Yeah. And at one point in that book where he's writing letters to this young man who's basically asking how can i be more like you <laughs> uh, yeah. you know he's 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 saying of course well that's not your goal your goal is to be more like yourself not like me yeah but but rilke says he says you're asking a lot of very big questions and these are the kinds of questions you're asking are not the sort that yield easy answers like what's 2 plus 2 these mm-hmm. are questions of a different order and so Rilke says, the important thing for you to keep your eyes on is, is to live the questions, these, live these big questions, not try to answer them. Because if you, I'm, I'm now substituting my own words, if you wrap your life around the most important questions you can identify, you may find, surprisingly, some distant day in the future that you have lived your way into answers and i feel like that's absolutely true that Mm. for years i've been you know living the question um what am i what am i called to do in this world given my gifts my privileges my opportunities what's within access for me what i might stretch for if it's not immediately at hand 
And slowly, slowly, you I live my way into answers. They change from one era of life to the next, but it keeps happening. Yeah. I'm really appreciative of, of, of a lot of, of all of that. And in particular, I want to underline it because it speaks to your earlier insight about paradox. You did this wonderful intuitive move where I sort of named like for those of us who are privileged to ask enough to ask this question and you sure said what, you know, actually like I've met people who belie all of the sort of expectations of what, what privilege is or isn't and are asking the question maybe even more powerfully and potently than anyone I've met. And it's this wonderful paradox of like, there's, I think I just want to name it for myself and and whoever else might want to hear it that that the question I would want to, one of the questions I want to wrap myself around is what does it look like to create a world in which everyone is consciously and intentionally invited in to that, that listening. And also to just recognize that right here, right now at this moment, anyone could be capable of stepping into that, that we can both commit to equality and egalitarianism and a, a future where democracy is thriving and allow for the fact that, that, right here, right now, we are where we are. And asking the question, regardless of your wealth or privilege or not, is a really powerful and beautiful question to ask. Well, well, thank you for lifting that up. It's, um, I think what you just said is absolutely true. And here's a, as in a good conversation, which we're having here, that leads me to one more thought about this, uh, which is that I know a lot of privileged white people who regularly ask themselves the question, what should I invest my money in? Which, <laughs> which isn't, you know, beyond, I mean, beyond self-gain. What socially valuable investments might I make? To what yeah. charity should I mm. give? How should I support this mm. or that good cause? And bless them, you know, that, that, that's a good question. But we can all learn from people who who don't ask that question because they don't have that kind of money. But instead they ask, what should I invest myself in? Mm -hmm. What should Mm -hmm. I invest my time and energy in? Mm -hmm. How how do I put my own body on the line Mm -hmm. for kids Mm -hmm. uh, or whatever it may be in in the community? If we could all get to that point, uh, because democracy itself is a, full body contact sport. You know, it's an immersion sport. Yeah. You don't do it from the bleachers. You do it by getting on the field. And while it's great to give money that I can afford to give to candidates and causes, even more is investing my voice, uh, my, mm. my thoughts, mm. my, my energies, to take those risks that a citizen needs to take. Um, and And not just to preach sermons but to walk the talk mm. uh, in, a, mm. in a variety of ways so i think that's a you know i think uh, that notion can take us to some some good places as we yeah. ponder it yeah yeah could i i have a whole separate conversation I, i'm imagining us having where we kind of dig into that what it might look like for those of us who use money as a proxy for engagement to say like oh what does it really what does it really mean for me to engage with these with this this world this life this democracy this community that I'm in because uh, there's a sense I'm having a sense of like the very well-intentioned 
ask there? How can I help? Is the question under the question. And and the learning there, the, the kind of implicit learning, it's like, well, the way you help is with money. So that's the thing I should do. And it's like, well, yeah. And maybe how how can I help? Maybe there are a lot of other ways that that you showing up in your body in this place with these people might be completely transformative. Yeah, and I can give you a quick example which yeah. comes to me out of experience. So, <clears throat> you know, we some of us are asking, so can I give again this quarter to Black Lives Matter or to some sort of anti-racism project? That's an important question. Pursue it. But how much more important is it to be in a conversation among people you know, maybe only slightly, or among colleagues, when somebody makes a racist comment mm. or a homophobic comment mm. uh, or a sexist or misogynistic comment? What is, it, what is it like to be there? And when you hear that comment, to take the risk of saying to the speaker, I need you to know that when you say something like that, you stick a knife in my heart mm. because you're now talking about friends of mine, mm. people I value. They're not mm. in this room, but I'm here and you need to reckon with my presence. Mm. Um, mm. And you need to think about what you've just said because that knife is in my heart and it doesn't feel good. Yeah. Wow. That's, you know, this thing called witness, which we sometimes have this sort of wifty uh, understanding of, can can put you right on the line taking risks. I sometimes think that the investments we make with our lives are, 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 are to be measured by the felt level of risk when we mm. make them. Mm. Um, mm. The more risk, maybe the more important that mm. witness. Mm. Thank you for sharing that example. Yeah, I can feel parts of me that are like would be terrified of like being that courageous and also the, the core in me going like that's it that is it right there to be able to hold steady in relationship to another human and name that pain and yeah and, and then if, if you're doing that among three four five six or eight people i can guarantee you that that investment of self is going to create more ripples that last longer than the hundred bucks you send to Black Lives Matter. Not that you shouldn't do that. You should. But that investment of self ripples around and maybe creates some change. Thanks, Parker. I'm I'm conscious of time. I have a a couple more questions. I mean, I have a million more questions I could ask you. I have a couple more I'm I'm feeling called to ask. We're approaching our sort of official time boundary, and I wonder... uh, should we aim to land the plane in the next five minutes, 10 minutes? 10, 10 is fine if that would help. Yeah, 10 would be great. Okay, lovely. One thing I wanted to touch on that that uh, you actually... So the two things I want to uh, explore, and we might not have time for both, but I'll, I'll name, name them both at least, is one, this question of how our society uh, treats elderly, treats elderly people and treats aging people. And, uh, and then the other is, is what it is for us to be on the brink of our own mortality in, in a way that, that you speak to, like in your book about, about aging and how you're relating to that now. Um, and I think I'll start with the, the elderly piece because you spoke so beautifully to like, hey, if we just invested in our and in, in grandmothers the world over, <laughs> 
how different life might be. And, and, and yet we just aren't doing that. I, there are maybe examples in history of poor treatment of our elders, but I really, my, one of my real feelings is right now that our, our kind of dominant capitalist culture does not do, do fair service to, to the elderly. And I wonder how you're kind of holding that question in your life right now and how, and what it means for you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very, it's very clear and has been for a long time that we do with the, with the elderly among us, our elder brothers and sisters, pretty much yeah. what we do with people with mental illness. Mm. I, I feel that because mm. I have a mental illness myself called a proclivity toward depression mm. from time to time in my life that mm. manifests itself. Um, with all kinds of folks, the homeless, what we attempt to do is just shove them out of sight and out of mind. Uh, we we marginalize them in yeah. every possible way we can. And that's partly, yeah, to keep the economic machinery running. I mean, the last thing the owner of a mall, a commercial mall, wants is, quote, people like that hanging around in a space that's devoted to making it look like all your problems can be solved by buying something here and, and now. Mm. Um, and, and so it, it, it's a horrific problem and the solution to, to the, we can always say that the solution to any of these problems depends on wise political leaders, you know, and good policy and all of that is true, but I'm not so drawn in the first instance to those kinds of solutions as I am to, the, the kind of questions that a community organizer asks. And, and those have to do with how can we speak up uh, as elderly or as homeless mm -hmm. or as people who struggle with mental illness? There's a lot of talk, of course, about cancel culture. Uh, a lot of it, I think, is nonsense, uh, a political invention to, to make spurious points about stuff that doesn't exist yeah but Agreed. to the extent there are cancel cultures as in cancel our awareness of, of the elderly you know factor them out of the equation they've put in their time they've done whatever good they can and now they just don't matter respond to that kind of cancel culture by refusing to shut up mm. Mm. just keep speaking up Mm. You know, keep on walking, keep on talking, as the <laughs> civil rights anthem went. And um, I think that's an important answer, and I think that we need to encourage each other to do that. Um, as someone who's written a book about aging, which includes some, I guess, kind of really, really unfavorable comments about certain political leaders of our, <laughs> of our time, I, I just hadn't realized how unfavorable they are. I, I know something about the blowback you can get for speaking up because I've gotten letters from elderly citizens of the United States with the most scorching language that I've, that I've, that I've heard since I worked in a warehouse in Chicago. <laughs> it's just, you know, I didn't, I didn't know that old ladies and old men knew those words, uh, but they do. And um, I have the letters, the handwritten letters. <laughs> 
prove them. Oh so, but it's but it opens a dialogue. You know, it opens a conversation. And speaking up is important because it's 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 how we establish a beachhead for a new reality. So, yeah. So I I think that you know it, I think at, at every stage of life, uh, and here's a, another big idea which we can talk about someday, Andy, but. At every stage of life, we're faced <clears throat> with a decision, a fundamental decision, as, as we run into obstacles that require us to take risks. And then we wonder if we take this risk, is, is massive punishment going to come crashing down on our heads or mm. punishment of any sort? Mm. You know, am I going to wreck what I thought were some friendships or am I going to take a nick in my reputation or am I going to be held back at work because I take an unpopular stand, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The, the, the people I know who've faced into that uh, dilemma, um, the ones I respect and admire so much are ones who, who've had a, a simple twist of logic, I guess you would call it, but it's really from illogic to logic. And that is that, that no punishment anybody could bring down upon me could possibly be worse than the punishment I inflict upon myself by mm. conspiring in my own diminishment, mm. conspiring mm. in my own diminishment. Mm. So the point is that if there's a cancel culture out there in regard to the elderly and you succumb to it, you're conspiring in your own diminishment. Mm. Why not speak up and liberate yourself uh, from the imprisonment of other people's prejudices or mm. other people's mm. blindness? Mm. Um, there's a wonderful invitation in there, though, for me or and for any of us who... who and you know, maybe there are some people who, this is a separate conversation about what age is just, is just a mindset, you know, whatever we could talk about that, but like, you know, I'm getting older and I'm only 41 compared to your 82, but to the extent that I participate in, in the, and implicitly or explicitly in the cancel culture of elderly, I'm participating in my own future cancellation. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, absolutely. That, we're all, we're all going there. This is, this is, <laughs> You know, if you want to get me started on, on, on you know, as, as the old folks sometimes call it, my organ recital, about, <laughs> you know, what, what's going wrong in my body. And that's what I call previews of coming attractions you know, <laughs> for, for, for everyone. So, yeah, we, we all we all have a dog in this fight. We all have a stake. Mm. in this reclaiming of fundamental mm. humanity. Mm. Mm. And I think this connects to kind of the last theme we could just play with for a few minutes, honoring that it's a lifelong theme. But you spoke earlier to your depression and the kind of way in which that was a death in life. And and uh, and when I hear the title of your book, On the Brink of Everything, I, I think for me it evokes immediately like, you know, the, the this threshold we pass a past which we don't really know and I can't and you'll cross it when you cross it and you couldn't take me with me me with you even if I wanted to peer past the veil and you know so there's all this kind of abstractions that we could explore there but 
in a really felt sense way, I'm curious how, what you might share about how you're preparing yourself for that journey. And I'm particularly thinking of this moment you said earlier, and you described this so beautifully and, and let your life speak, but there's this, this moment you said earlier, like no one could come with me in my depression, but there was one person who came and, and just washed your feet every day. And there's something almost like, yeah, a massage feet. And there's something almost like sacramental to me about that. Something like, you know, in a way they were showing up and saying, come or go, or I'm just, I'm here and I'm, and I'm honoring where you are. And that, that feels important as I ask you this question of how you're kind of readying yourself for, for the, the threshold when you cross it. Yeah, there were there were people who came to me during my depression, as I, as I write about in the book, um, that uh, were, were, you know they they meant to be encouraging, but they were actually depressing. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, so this is the person who comes and says, "Well, Parker, why are you sitting here in this dark room? Get outside in the sunshine. It's a beautiful day." Well, if you're clinically depressed the way I was, you know intellectually that it's a beautiful day outside, but you also know that you can't feel one iota of that beauty in your body. Mm. And that makes you even more depressed. And layer layer over all of that, the fact that going outdoors is scary because you mm. might have to talk with someone. Mm. Um, mm. And you, the world is full of knives, or that's the way it felt to me. I was just raw and Mm. unprepared for normal social encounters did everything i could to avoid them and then a person who comes to you and says in this you know in the same category would be helpers um who says how can you be depressed you've written such wonderful things you've encouraged and helped so many people and that's more depressing because at the moment you you feel all you can feel is I guess I've defrauded one more person who if they saw who I really was and how I really felt would just cast me further into the outer darkness. And I don't need any more of that. So it, this one guy who came to me, a dear friend who died a few years ago named Bill Tabor and simply sat down every afternoon about four o'clock with my permission, uh, I'm in an easy chair in my living room, and he's massaging my feet. He said very little um, and never any sort of cheerleading uh, or exhortation. But he somehow found that one place in my body, my the soles of my feet, where I could feel some sort of connection to another human being. Mm-hmm. And that was precisely what I needed because I felt utterly disconnected you know just floating around like an atom in the void Mm. so the way i as you know andy from on the brink of everything uh, when i get to that last chapter about about death and dying um i i'm quick to acknowledge that i have no idea what that's going to be like either in general or for me specifically, I can imagine all sorts of scenarios, um, you know, anything from dying in my sleep to dying in considerable pain as many people have to do. Um, but 
a couple of things that came to me instinctively about this. I didn't think my way to these. And maybe the most important is that when I was born, I came here from I know not where. Mm. Mm. Um, I, you know, I understand the biology just fine. Yeah. But the mystery of where, where we come from <clears throat> with, with a, 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 with a, a self that I think in so many ways is more fully formed than we imagine. Mm. Because you can see things in very young kids that manifest themselves as the years go by in, in character traits or personality traits that, that showed up early on. Mm. Tropisms and revulsions that c- continue to morph through, through their lifetime if you watch carefully and listen carefully. Um, so I came here from I know not where, but I have no bad memories of that place. And mm. the, the safest presumption I can make about what happens afterwards is that I return to that same mm. place or space or whatever you want to call it. Mm. And since I have no bad memories, why, uh, why should I fear it? Mm. Um, it seems to me that it's, you know, it's, it's a hospitable place, mm. however, however you understand it. Mm. The other thing I know, which is, felt i feel it but it's also a kind of intellectual construct is that we know that the the sum total of atoms in the universe has not changed since the big bang it just they just keep morphing into different forms and switching places and taking different shapes so what i reckon is that I, I have a pretty good chance of returning to something either in the earth, in mm. precious places like the boundary waters of northern Minnesota, mm. or the Sangre de Cristo Mountains of New Mexico, or into one of those stars that are so beautiful at night. And since I love stargazing and I love being in places of natural beauty, why not? imagine that, that that's where I'm going to go. So this is this is where I uh, say in the book that I actually know the zip code of heaven, um, which is up in the boundary waters of northern Minnesota, <laughs> one of my favorite places in the world. And if, if you know, if, if I want to come back as a loon, or if, I'm, if I come back as a loon, or in the, in the northern lights, I'm just fine with that. Uh, and if anybody wants to know where it is, the zip code is in the book. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Good, a nice, a nice temptation to read in if they're not already <laughs> tempted to do so. Yeah, and, and I just want to under that was so beautiful. Thank you. And I just want to underline as we wrap up. You said earlier something to the effect of like, even as we die and our atoms go like that, go back into the dust. That's feeding the community to come. And there's this sort of wonderful cycle of regeneration that you're pointing towards that's really enlivening for me at least as i sit with that yeah i i i totally believe that i get a lot of uh, comfort from it i think reassurance from it it's i know you're a songwriter and i wrote a song with my friend carrie newcomer called the music will play on 
which is about dancing into into the darkness as new life dances in. So it's partly about, you know, as as has long been said, um, I've done my work as best I know how, and the time comes for me just to get out of the way so that the younger generation, folk like yourself, good folk like yourself, can, you know, follow their own version of this path into Mm. their best possibilities and contributions Mm. to the community. Mm. So that, to me, that, that whole thing, that makes a lot of sense. It's all about recycling. (laughs) (laughs) Parker, uh, some people say you should never meet your heroes, but I am just so grateful that I had this time with you. And uh, I really can't wait for other folks to hear it. Whoever needs it or wants it, I trust will find their way to it. Um, well, thank you, really I'm grateful. I'm grateful you reached out. Thank you so much. It's been a delight to talk with you. You're a wonderful interviewer. A very organic conversation. If you ever want to do this downstream, I'll, I'll be here. One oh, way or one way all right. Or all right. Here. Careful. Don't be too generous with your time here, Parker. You <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I would like that. I felt like as we went, and this happens a lot for me, uh, but in particular, I just felt like there were so many different eddies and channels and and you know different ways we could have flowed uh so so i'd love more time for that in one way shape or form but regardless thank you thank you thank you take good care you too parker thanks for tuning into the wonder dome this podcast was produced by me andy cahill with support from kelly surqua and audio editing services from john nolan at middle mountain studios the theme song was written and performed by todd marston You can find the Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact on the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep this show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now more than ever.